America is a land of immigrants. However, by 2050, it's estimated that 1.2 billion human beings could become climate refugees. Whoa, what are we going to do about that? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Nativism. Valuing white European stock Americans who are already here more than more recent or darker-skinned Americans is really nothing new, sad to say. We all remember the most glaring example of this when that failed businessman Donald Trump rode down that golden escalator at Trump Tower and proclaimed of Central American refugees coming to the U.S. through Mexico that they're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. And Trump actually never stopped smearing people who found themselves in wrenching flight from their homes. He called them animals and their existence here as American carnage. Trump, before Trumpism's president, Woodrow Wilson, unleashed a little-known but brutal war on immigrants in the 19-teens. And I seriously doubt any American who is now listening is not from immigrant or refugee stock. Today, the mainstream media routinely labels the current flood of people fleeing persecution and wars as an immigration crisis. We have to consider... How bad would circumstances have to be to make someone leave their home, their families, their source of income, and make a truly life-threatening trek? Most families who make the long, incredibly arduous journey are rejected at our southern border. Not so for Ukrainians. For everyone but Ukrainians, the hoops we put them through are indeed brutal. As Tom Eberhardt writes in his Tom Dispatch uh, magazine, climate change is inevitably going to ratchet up the worldwide demand for safe refuge. As this planet broils, ever more of humanity will be all too literally driven from their homes. By 2050, it's estimated, he says, that 1.2 billion human beings could become climate refugees. 1.2 billion. Our guest today on Keeping Democracy Alive is Columbia University Professor Helen Benedict, who's been covering the global refugee crisis for years and looking at the injustices of who gets to come in from where, including those fleeing from wars of this century. Most recently, she's been reporting from Greece, where she met a Syrian writer and refugee, Iyad Awadama Anan. The two of them wrote the just-published book, Map of Hope and Sorrow, Stories of ref Refugees Trapped in Greece, about how refugees are being dis abused not only there but all over the West. Today we'll discuss how differently Europe and the United States have been treating white Christian Ukrainian refugees than those from anywhere else. Her essay on Tom Dispatch is titled Unequal Mercy, The West's Approach to Refugees.
unequal mercy. We'll look into why most of the countries embracing Ukrainians are simultaneously persecuting equally desperate refugees from elsewhere. Well, Helen Benedict, thanks so much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. Since September 11, 2001, the U.S. has been conducting a so-called global war on terror. Now, we in America, we don't see the results, but the people in the countries under attack sure do. What has this war on terror, this global war on terror done? How many people has it displaced that they were not seeing? What has been the U.S. effort to help those displaced? We've displaced, the war on terror has displaced some 37 million people since 2001. Um, most people are displaced within their countries. Uh, they have to flee their cities or their hometowns and seek refuge elsewhere. Uh, but it still totally disrupts and destroys their lives. Um, and many settle in neighboring countries, which tend to be, because we focused our war on terror on the Middle East, tend to be poor countries. And one of the ironies of the whole refugee situation globally is that the, mo the countries that hold the most refugees are the poorest countries in the world, mm. whereas the richest countries in the world, like ours, hold the least. Um, what have we done to help? <laughs> well, um, if you were a, an interpreter working for the U.S. military in Afghanistan or Iraq, you might be very, very lucky and gotten a special immigrant visa which would take months with a great deal of, of vetting. Um, but that was pretty much stopped under Trump. It was stopped mm -hmm. because, um, because his immigration ministers, especially Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller, didn't want any Iraqis or, or Afghans, uh, no matter what, in this country, no matter what they had sacrificed for us or in the name of democracy. So... Um, we still have this kind of policy. We're applying it uh, even to Afghans today and to um, Venezuelans, which is that if you have a connection to America, if you have someone to sponsor or you worked for us, you might, you just might be able to, to, to get asylum here. But if you don't, you're really out of luck. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, helping is not really the thing we've done. Yep. <laughs> it's quite the opposite, <laughs> shall we say. Not been, and, and, it, and let's be specific here. The worst thing we did was invade Iraq for no reason, because that destabilized the entire Middle East, and we've been paying for it ever since, and they've been paying for it ever since. One other thing I will say is that there is one set of Americans who are very well aware of, of what this has been like. And those are people who served, military people who served in Iraq and Afghanistan or lost their lives there. Or, you know, who are, who are actually the people we put on the front lines of our war on terror. So um, they do know. But they're only about 1% of Americans. So most of us have been happily oblivious, it seems. Uh, yes, American exceptionalism. That means we don't see any of the results of our actions. But boy, other people sure do feel them. We just live, uh, you know, happy, uh, unknowing here. Um, is, there, is there something qualitatively different about the Ukrainian refugees situation? 
um, if we care about escaping horrible, unjust wars? Um, from their point, from the point of view of people undergoing violence and war, whether it's a civil war or an invasion from outside, there is no difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Syrians were even suffered under Putin's bombs because Putin allied himself with uh, Assad to oppress Syrian people and squash all signs of dissent and, you know, has rained <clears throat> Russian bombs on the Syrians for years. So they even have a com- common enemy, you, you know, Ukrainians and Syrian people. So being, you know, being bombed and killed and murdered and tortured and imprisoned uh, is the same, you know, there's no quality of difference between whether that happens to you or raped for that matter, whether you're Ukrainian, Syrian or from anywhere else. From the West point of view, there's a difference because you know we see Ukrainians as Europeans like us. Right. They're white. They're either Christian or Jewish, mostly Christian, um, and they're on the the border of Europe. And so, of course, an invasion there is threatening to the whole of Europe and thus the whole of the West. Furthermore, and this this is what's so related to your opening um, a speech about nativism. You know, we we see, we see them as like us, not as the other, the way we tend to see Muslims and the Middle Easterners and Africans and even African Christians. We see them as the other because of because of our deep seated racism. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. The other, there's always it seems like there's got to always be the other. If there's no other, some of the powers that be have to invent an other that threatens us uh, you know we the whole uh, border wall that that trump was so obsessed with was to protect us from the other and the de- well that's always exactly sorry to interrupt no sorry. no i just got excited because of course i'm thinking of hitler i mean that's what everybody every autocrat every dictator every world conqueror wannabe does is find a scapegoat the othering, whether it be Jew, Jews or Muslims or, um, you know, or just people who look different than you or whatever. Whereas, and it's it, always it, at the heart of it. And, and it sounds like, gosh, the Ukrainians look like us. They're not the other. They're us. Interesting. Right. Interesting angle that uh, I think a lot of people don't think about. And and Syria, you know, people people haven't thought about Syria for a while. Uh, and Putin, uh, Putin's bombs... And Ukraine, the, the bombs killed people, you know, either way, in, in, in Syria or Ukraine. For years, since the war in Syria began back in 2011, man, yes. many refugees from Syria under uh, Putin's bombs. Putin has been helping uh, to protect the uh, the government there. Uh, many refugees from the Syrian war have taken to the seas of the Mediterranean, which is a big, rough sea. And in terms of distance to travel, Greece is a very logical stopping point. It's it's a heck of a lot closer than some of the other countries that, you know, the refugees would probably prefer to go to. They've had, Greece has had military repressive governments in the past, notably the colonel's regime, which had close buddy-buddy ties to Vice President Spiro Agnew, but but those days are gone, I believe. Fast forward to 2023, and you write of Greece 
One of the worst examples of the unequal mercy were addressing uh, taking place in Greece, the major gateway to Western Europe for anyone fleeing the Middle East or Africa. Tell us, please, about their approach to Ukrainian refugees as compared to their closer Mediterranean neighbors. And and tell us, please, while we're talking about Greece, why you concentrated on Greece, what, 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 what you've learned in your time there. Sure. Um, well, if you look at a map and you see where, uh, where Africa is placed and where Syria and Afghanistan are placed, you can see the logic of going to Greece because the first thing to do is is to get to Turkey, and then you go to the south of Turkey, to the coast, and the nearest Greek island is only one and a half kilometers away. You could swim to it. So that's like the border between the east and the west, right? So if you want to go to the west, because you believe in all the rhetoric you've heard all your life and seen in movies, you know, about how in, in the West you will be treated with dignity and your, your human rights will be respected and you'll have a chance at making a life free of oppression and violence. <coughs> you want to get get to Western Europe through Greece. So um, I concentrated on that, as did the European Union itself, because it's the major gateway. Some people do go to land in Spain and Italy to the other part of the Edinburgh. The Mediterranean. But Greece has been the focal point, um, especially the islands in the northern Aegean near Turkey. Um, as a result, uh, Greece at first, like when, when the Syrians first started fleeing after 2011, um, and most of them, it was 2015 when most Syrians and Iraqis started really coming, um, Greece was welcoming and they would process them quite quickly through these islands and send them to the mainland. Um, but then in 2016, alarmed by the numbers that were coming over, the EU made a deal with Greece and Turkey that essentially, <clears throat> it's a bit complicated to explain, but essentially the EU gave a bunch of money to both countries to create a bunch of processes, including ostensibly swapping refugees back and forth between Turkey and Greece. But the point of it really was to trap refugees uh, in Turkey and Greece and keep them out sure. of the way. Yeah. And this is this is exactly what happened. And a lot of them have been trapped in these notorious island camps for years, years on end, uh, and living in the most horrible slum-like conditions with no, um, no, no sanitation, no protection, no electricity, living in tents or homemade huts. Some in shipping containers, mm. terrible food that makes you sick, um, and no protection from violence from your fellow traumatized refugees, which is especially awful for women or LGBTQ people. Mm. Meanwhile, um, after Putin uh, invaded Ukraine, in the first three months after that, 21,000 Ukrainians arrived in Greece within three months, more than all the asylum seekers put together gone to Greece in the whole year before. They were not put in camps. They were not trapped on islands. They were put given housing, a right to work. The kids were put in schools. They were given temporary protection status and, um, and treated the way legally refugees should be treated. And, and they're Asylum procedures were fast forwarded through. 
Um, <clears throat> none of this has ever been available to refugees from the Middle East or Africa. Why? I'm curious. Uh, why are Ukrainian refugees welcome in Greece? Are they not seen as the other? I mean, how is it? How do they decide to do that? And is there not an uproar about that? Um, a new government was elected in Greece in 2019, which is very anti-immigrant, right-wing government and very Christian-centered. Uh, and they and they see Ukrainians as, as fellow white Christians. I see. They are not the other. Whereas Muslims, Muslims and dark-skinned people are not welcome. Uh-huh. So um, it was really very simple, and the language they used was chilling, because the Minister of Migration called Ukrainians real refugees and claimed that everybody else was was a migrant, an economic migrant just just coming to kind of suck suck money from the Greeks who are already struggling as it is economically. Wow. And that that was the way he painted it. And that's well, you know, that's a typical right wing thing to say, and that's what's being done all over Europe about as an excuse for differentiating Ukrainians from everyone else, as if fleeing a bomb in one country is right. any more real than fleeing a bomb in another country. Yeah, a bomb is going to kill you uh, without regard to your skin color or religious background. That's that's for sure. And for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about discrimination uh, on, on refugees, how Ukrainian refugees are treated very differently from, from other refugees. Our guest today is uh, Columbia University professor Helen Benedict, who has uh, written an article titled Unequal Mercy, The West's Approach to Refugees. Well, there is a long history of antipathy, uh, to put it mildly, between Greece and the Turks. Uh, is there? Tell us about the race, the racism against Muslims in Greece, especially under this new government that I'm. I, I, I wish I knew more about. What is the new democracy movement there? Is that an absolute? Yeah, that's what. <laughs> Yeah, that's what they call themselves in, yeah. that, in that same kind of Orwellian double speak that, you know, that Trump used to use. Mm. It's significant, by the way, that all that this the persecution of refugees in Greece really started the same year that Trump was elected. Uh. And I think there's a connection because he did give the green light to all people who are all around the world who were that way inclined and made it seem, well, if America, you know, the bastion of, of human rights and respect for immigrants, etc., can can talk talk like this and and do these terrible things to immigrants. We can as well. Yeah. Um, so, I really think it's very connected. But and that's really when things got worse. Up until then, it wasn't so bad. And I I want to make a couple of caveats. Of course, I'm generalizing here. Not all Greeks are racist or Islamophobic. A lot have been extremely kind, but um, the government's messages are unmistakably um, merciless and racist. And so, of course, it brings out that in the people who are already so inclined as we're seeing in our own country. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the, you know, they keep, one of the things they did from the very beginning, the minute they were elected, this new democracy government, 
is they just started stripping away all the rights and benefits that had been previously granted to refugees and asylum seekers. They started evicting them from their housing. They cut off their um, their allowances. They, Greece has never offered, by the way, any sort of uh, integration services like language lessons or, or job training, which other countries do. Um, and because there's so much racism and suspicion there, a lot of landlords won't rent to refugees and, they, and a lot of employers won't hire them. So you know, many refugees end up on the streets. Um, and, you know, so when you win asylum, which takes about five years, if you're lucky, in Greece, um, you're supposed to get international protection from all discrimination and persecution um, but in, and access to job, jobs and so on. But what really happens is every all help is cut off and you get thrown out on the street. So most people try to leave illegally or, or legally and, um, and try to get out of Greece because it's a hopeless situation there. You can't, you can't make a living. You can't get anywhere. It's a terrible trap, which is why we've used that mm. subtitle for our book, you know, Stories of Refugees Trapped in Greece. Wow. Um, that, that, what about how Greece treats Ukrainian refugees? Are they... Uh, they're 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 not pushed into you know terrible situations like that. And how can they get away with that? Um, how do they get away with it? Because they appeal to people's deep-seated white supremacist leanings. Uh-huh. Mm. I mean, I'm putting it bluntly, but I can't think of any other reason. You know, uh, along with what I said before about oh God, you know these these people are. They're Europeans like us. It's easier for us to imagine being in their situation and feel sympathy than it is for us to imagine being a Syrian or an Afghan or a Cameroonian uh-huh. uh, under, undergoing persecution or war. So, um, you know, I mean, I'm psychoanalyzing racism <laughs> or nativism here, but anybody's guess. But I think it. I don't think it's that subtle. I think it's fairly obvious why people are. Uh, and and, I, and also, um, some of the mainstream media is contributing to this by the language they use. Uh, I wrote an essay uh-huh. about why why we should be really careful about using the word migrant, which I see all the time and hear all the time, even on NPR and BBC, because a migrant is somebody who comes for economic improvement. Right. They might come from desperate situations, but they have no none of the rights that an asylum seeker or a refugee have. So it's very easy to deny them any kind of help. And it also doesn't elicit the same sympathy in the reader or listener when you use the word migrant as when you use the word refugee, which immediately evokes fleeing from some kind of terror. Yes. So when we use, and then when we use illegal, the word illegal, uh-huh. That is also, if somebody is an asylum seeker, if they are fleeing terror, war, persecution, death, imprisonment, torture, and they cannot stay home and they cannot go home without risking those things, it, they are never illegal. They have a total legal right, international legal right to enter any country to seek asylum in any way, regardless of that country's laws about its borders. And yet we call them illegal migrants all the time thus contributing to the right-wing propaganda 
that these people shouldn't be here and have no right to be here, which is just not true. They do. Yeah, I wondered about that, that term illegal, calling somebody an individual, a human being, an illegal. It's, uh, it ain't right. It just it bothers me very much. What about, what about Turkey? I mean, that's a Muslim country. How do they deal with refugees in, in Turkey? Uh, it's complicated because one would think fellow Muslims, they'd be kind. They are. I mean, Turkey has more Syrians than any other country in the world. Uh -huh. But they do not recognize Syrians as official refugees. Huh. Thus, they grant no rights to uh, them. None of the rights of protection that were, that were enshrined in the um, Geneva Convention in 1951 which means that they can send Syrians back to Syria, even if it means sending them back to their deaths. Whoa. Also, many Syrians have told me and I, that um, ISIS fighters and Assad soldiers are in Turkey looking for, you know, deserters or looking for uh. escapees all the time, and they seize them and drag them back. Um, and Afghans have told me that the same is true of the Taliban. Uh, so, Turkey's not safe at all, and if you 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 can't work, we I mean usually you you're used as a kind of slave labor. Um, you don't have any legal rights. You're actually officially a guest, so you're not a citizen. You're not, you know you have no kind of a visa. You have not got a refugee. You're not an asylum seeker. You have no rights. So if your employer refuses to pay you. You can do nothing about it. Or if, you know, you're, you're working and your foot gets crushed, you can do nothing. Uh, you can't sue. You have, you have no rights at all. Um, and uh, also there's terrible sexual persecution of women, of women immigrant, women refugees. So one of the deals I mentioned before, this EU-Turkey deal, <clears throat> one of the, the things that, all asylum seekers in Greece have to do first. They have to go through two interviews. And the first interview is you have to prove that it's not safe for you to be sent back to Turkey because that's what the EU and Greece wants to do, send you back to Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, so you have to make an argument for why it's not safe for you. Now Turkey doesn't want them anyway, and of course Turkey and Greece are always fighting and, yes. they're, and they're using refugees as pawns, kicking them back and forth. So there's that going on as well. Well, of course, I think of uh, of the U.S. And, and you know wanting to kick back the uh, refugees coming from uh, the south, uh, from the, you know from across the Mexican border and the and the uh, the governments there and their, their brutal treatment. And we talk about rights, and uh, you know what there there was something that you mentioned the uh, 1951 Refugee Convention. What kind of rights does that? give to to refugees and and uh, how how can they not be recognized what is that 1951 yeah. refugee convention okay thank you for asking this because i think this is something that is important to understand for americans is understanding the constitution is because it, it it is probably it is really one of the main moments when um recognition of international human rights is born in the West. It's so important in enshrining what our values are supposed to be. It was a, it was created in reaction to the horrors of the Holocaust. 
and to the realization that many countries, including the US and the UK, my two countries, turned Jewish refugees back to their deaths. And there was a definite sense that we can never do this. We must never do this again. So the convention was held in the brand new UN in 1951 um, and, and then redefined again later in 67. And it defined a refugee as somebody who was forced to flee their country because of, and I'm quoting from it, well, a well-founded fear of persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group, somebody who cannot return home or is afraid to do so. And in that was also, in that convention, was enshrined the following rights. The right to international protection from discrimination and persecution, the right to housing, to schooling, and the chance to work for a living. The right not to be criminalized for seeking asylum, or subject to refoulement, which means being sent back to the country you fled. So when I spell that out, you can see how everything we've been talking about is that all these actions are illegal that that the world is doing now. Uh, Later on, the convention was expanded to be more specific about people fleeing war, um, internal conflict, or... um, Source of starvation, basically. Not everybody signed on to that. But the initially 149 signed on to that refugee convention, 149 countries, mm-hmm. including all the ones we've been talking about. Um, <clears throat> uh, you know, and especially the US and the UK were kind of at the leaders, the leaders of this, which is why it's so sad to see the way we're behaving now. I can't help but wonder, when those 149 countries signed on to this very specific (laughs) refugee convention, were they thinking at the time, oh, we'll just throw that in the trash at some future date and it's all just, you know, for show? Did they really mean it? I mean, whatever. How, How can there not be any enforcement of that whatsoever? Was there ever enforcement of it, any possibility of it? Well, I think it was um, it was an idealistic time. Yeah, that's true. Pe- people, people, in the, people were in shock from the war. Right. They finally learned what had really happened in the Holocaust, and there was, I think, it was a genuine good faith effort that we, we as uh-huh. human beings, have to be better than that. We can't ever let all this kind of thing happen again. Mm. I think it was totally in good faith, and for a long time. Um, you know, varying from country to country and time to time and leader to leader, much of that has been stuck to, and some of it still is being stuck to, but Uh it's become very selective (laughs) and very, you know, right. Well, it it does seem, and and, and I have to say I've observed through the years that right-wing authoritarian governments rely on erasing history they don't want yeah. history to be known and understood and actually uh, enforced. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is uh, Columbia University professor Helen Benedict, who has written Map of Hope and Sorrow, Stories of Refugees Trapped in Greece. She spent a lot of time in Greece, and uh, we're talking about how refugees from Ukraine are being treated very differently 
uh, uh, from refugees elsewhere. And uh, I, no I noticed, uh, I mean, one of the countries that's where refugees are trying to go is uh, formerly Great Britain, not so great anymore. Reaching England has been a goal <laughs> of many refugees. The New York Times January 24th notes, a dearth of workers has hit the food and farming sectors particularly hard in England. Last year, in 2022, about $27 million worth of fruit and vegetables went unharvested. The new conservative government of Ishi Sunak, I mean, here are people who want to come to England, who want to work, who could perhaps harvest the fruit and vegetables that go unharvested. What's he doing about refugees? Do they, are they not welcoming refugees to help address their actual serious problem there? They certainly are not. Um, they especially don't like it when they come over the channel uh, by boat. Uh, because most, of course, the people who come over the channel by boat are the poorest ones and tend to be Syrians and Afghans and um, <clears throat> Iraqis or some Africans, but mostly the former. Syrians still make up the bulk of refugees in the world, by the way. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, even even in 2022, this was still true. I just checked the stats. Um, but anyway, so... Yes, so Rishi has been following in his, in his ghastly predecessor's footsteps, Boris Johnson, the clone, Trump clone, yeah. um, <laughs> in persecuting refugees and trying to keep them out. So there, you know, he's he's just offered what is it, something like seventy-four million euros to France to strengthen the border, the, the sea border to stop, or the channel border to stop boats coming over. Then they came up with this idea of, oh, we'll take the Syrians and Afghans and Iraqis and we'll force them onto airplanes and fly them to Rwanda and make them get asylum there, out of sight, out of, out of mind. Mm. That's been declared illegal by the EU International mm. Court, but they keep trying to do it. Um, I mean, that actually has harkens back in a chilling way again to Hitler. Because before the Nazis came up with the final solution, they had this idea that they would round up all the Jews and put them on the island of Madagascar yes. and basically work and starve them to death there. So it has this horrible echo of that. Um, <clears throat> so it, the, uh, And then when you do get to, if, if you do get inside England and you get caught, you will be put in really, really unpleasant warehouse type detention centers mm. uh, awaiting your asylum. And you will not be allowed to work in all the years, and it can be eight years, 10 years before you get asylum. So then you get accused of living off them because they won't let you work. <laughs> so it, it's become extremely hostile to, to refugees who aren't coming in by airplane. Uh, with fleeing uh, Ukraine or Ukraine or, or um, other Absolutely white amazing. You, you would think there might be an argument for, uh, you know, welcoming people to harvest the unharvested fruit and vegetables. And, and you know, Republicans here in this country are, are known for being, oh, very much, you know, racist and anti-refugee. And yet when it comes to hiring people, 
huh, guess who they hire, who they like to hire, undocumented uh, so-called aliens. You know, they, they work cheaper. It, it, it's, right. it, it's amazing to me. And back, back to Greece. You've, okay, you were about to say something? Yeah, I think it's a double whammy in the UK because it's not yeah. only, you know, refugees they won't let work, but because of Brexit, they've lost a lot of their immigrants in general. Um, and actually, this is a problem, although, you know, many countries in Europe are losing population. They mm. need workers. The same countries that won't let them in. Anyway, amazing. Yeah. Yes, but you've spent a lot of time in Greece and, and and looking at Greece. And someday I would like to go yeah. there, and I'd like to see, of course, a real democratic government there. It would be nice. Never been there. <laughs> <laughs> but as I understand it, Greece has had its share of economic troubles of late. There's the financial pressure from the uh, European Union nations, led by Germany, and extremist groups on the right that you mentioned have been very active in light of the economic difficulties. Uh, and I can imagine people there say, hey, we're struggling for jobs. We can't handle the pressure from refugees. Let us, you know, Greek people, native Greek people, uh, do the jobs here. We don't need more refugees taking the jobs that we have. And that's an argument that's used all over the place. What's your reaction to this, which is echoed in many other countries? Right, right. Well, it's true that, you know, Greece has gone through... Um, was bankrupt and gone through great hardship economically. And, and many people of all classes lost their jobs, not just working class, but middle class people. And, you know, people working in television, journalists, and real estate people, architects, lost their jobs, lost their jobs. Um, but there's, somehow they still managed to welcome all those Ukrainians and, mm. and, and help them find jobs. So there, you know, there's a disconnect between what they claim and what they like. All the things they said they couldn't afford to do for Syrians for, and so on, they they suddenly could afford to do for Ukrainians. Elsewhere, I mean, there have been economists and if there have been academics who who look really hard at the economics of refugees and have come up with with. Uh, very convincing arguments that show that actually refugees don't take people's jobs away. They contribute to the economy. For example, in Germany, you know, where they in, my, in 2015, when they let, when Angela Merkel let in so many people, so many refugees, it was expensive at first, but in the long run, the GDP of that country went way up. Because there was an influx of people who were willing to do all kinds of work that many Germans aren't willing to do, right? As well as as people with with skills and talent. I mean, not all refugees are farm workers, you know. Right. <laughs> Doctors and engineers and architects and professors and scholars and writers and artists and so on as well. Yes. And they have a lot to contribute. And I want to quote at this point because I want to quote my co-author. Uh, because he says when, when we talk about the book together he makes some really important points and he says you know you have this fear that we are we have come here to replace you we don't want to replace you we want to work we want to contribute we want to make a good life for our children we want to be responsible citizens and we want to be able to live without fear of being killed that is all the only reason we have come here. Mm. 
And I think that we, we lose sight of that because we hear so much rhetoric against it, rhetoric that's not true. Yeah, there's the rhetoric that's not true, of which there's a lot, and there's the reality, you know, if we think about, you know, doctors and lawyers and, and professionals here in America, and a great many are people who come recently from, from other countries, and you know, professionals like anybody else, it doesn't matter their religion, their color of their skin, Ukrainian or, or Syrian, whatever. But somehow the the lie and, and the the racist myth phew, seems to have a lot of power. I got to ask about you know n not everybody is is racist for sure. I mean America you know not everybody has guns, but we're kind of known as being full of guns. You know not everybody's racist, but we're kind of known for being racist here. Uh, and there are in Europe and Greece and, and lots of different places there are private efforts to rescue these refugees at sea. Yeah, these are good Samaritans, as they say, who, who see dinghies overloaded where people drown a lot. And, and you know, these dinghies are, are threatening many lives, including children out on the Mediterranean, the rough seas of the Mediterranean. Uh, these, there's, what about these good Samaritans? What is the government... Of, of Greece and other places doing about the people who try to, you know, rescue people on these, you know, incredibly dangerous yeah. dinghies. What, what, what happens to the Good I, Samaritans? I think this is one of the most shocking things I've ever heard of in this whole situation, which is that um, Greece and Italy now are criminalizing people who try to rescue refugees at, at sea. Amazing. Can you imagine no. making someone who wants to save a life a criminal? Mm. I mean, it's against every value we're supposed to hold dear. So there are these NGOs. I mean, these are people who volunteer. These aren't even people who are getting paid. They work as volunteers for NGOs, and they go out and they do to, to rescue um, capsized boats, floundering boats, stranded boats, and right. save people from drowning. Um, and then the next thing they know, they're arrested and accused of human trafficking. Um, and by the way, calling rescuers and calling refugees themselves human traffickers is one of the main um, legal dodges that's being used also by the UK uh, to excuse um, arresting them. So they even, you know, like, for example, one of the people in my book, he had no money when he needed by the time he reached the southern coast of Turkey. And so, you know, he found the smugglers and said, I really need to go to Greece because ISIS is after me and they're going to kill me if I stay. Um, but I have no money. And they said, well, if you agree to steer the boat for part of the way, you can go for free. Mm. Um, you know, and they got out there in the rough season, this overloaded inflated dinghy. And, um, if he and the other refugee, by the way, the smugglers abandon them as soon as they push them out, boat out, they jump off the boat and swim back to Turkey. So they leave them on their own. If somebody doesn't steer, they'll all die, including all the women and children and everything on the boat. And then they arrive in Greece and they get accused of being smugglers, human traffickers, and the next thing you know, they're on trial. So <clears throat> it happens to the refugees themselves as well as to these NGO volunteers. And there's a very famous case now of one of the Olympic swimmer sisters 
called The Swimmers. There's a movie about it on Netflix, which I think is very good. Oh. And she has, she has been arrested for rescuing people at sea under exactly these laws. So Greece is doing this, England's doing this, Italy's doing this, um, and it's just unconscionable. Mm. Absolutely amazing to go against. I mean, it's human nature to try to rescue people. It just, it's, it's a good part yeah. of, of human nature. And, of course, Italy does have a new government. Uh, it, quite frankly, it's yeah. not hard to keep track because they switch so often. The new government, I, I just can't imagine. I can only imagine Georgia Maloney, who, I think that's her name, who openly admires Mussolini, uh, tell us a bit about Italy and before we go into uh, some so-called liberal nations and what they're doing. Right. Uh, yeah, she just recently passed a decree saying that when boats arrive, um, boats of refugees arrive, that the, the men on the boat are not allowed to set foot on the land. Oh um, <clears throat> so, you know, you, what are you going to do? Stay on a boat for the rest of your life and wait for it to sink, starve to death. Um, and that brings up something else which is happening a lot and which we just aren't paying enough attention to in the West, which is the behavior of the of Frontex, which is the Coast Guard of the European Union, as well as the Coast Guard of Greece, which is that they are, instead of rescuing boats of refugees, they're pushing them back out to sea. In some cases, they've even taken people who just landed, put them on a raft, and pushed them back out to oh sea, which is, which is attempted murder, in my view. And sometimes it results in murder because some of those people have died, have drowned because of that. Um, of course, Greece is completely denying it's doing this. Frontex is denying it's doing this. The Human Rights Watch has documented many cases of it, um, and so has this really incredibly important source nobody knows about called the Aegean Boat Report, which is run by a Norwegian all by himself. And he um, he's a he's in touch with with sea with pilots of boats, both Turkish and Greek, who are in the Mediterranean, the Aegean, all the time and seeing firsthand and filming things like this happening. He counts the numbers of ground and the numbers of pushbacks but with first-hand witnesses. So, so it's well documented. So this yeah. is basically the Coast Guard doing this. It's just... I, I, yeah, I can't, the official it, Coast Guard. Gosh, I can't even... It's, it's just so hard to picture this. And yet... The situation is not likely to get better anytime soon, that's for sure, because, you know, people are going to be starving soon with the, uh, uh, with, with the climate change. Uh, people are going to have to flee where they are. So what about these, you know, more traditional liberal countries, not just the far-right governments, the, the, the countries, as you say, previously known for their liberality, such as... The the the, the uh, Scandinavian countries, Sweden, Denmark. Tell us about them, please. Yeah. Well, Sweden um, just reduced the number of refugees, its quota of refugees from five thousand a year to nine hundred, using the same rhetoric. The government of we don't want those people coming in to replace us. Yeah. You know, which is white supremacist rhetoric. Yes. And then, <clears throat> and Denmark, they've been. So they've been rounding up some Syrians, 
some of whom have lived there for more than 10 years and made whole lives and careers in sending them back to Syria. Um, and they're doing this mostly to the women because they say women aren't in danger in Syria because they won't be forced to fight for Assad or ISIS. Well, this is unbelievably ignorant because Assad's prisons are full of women being tortured and raped. Mm. You have to be a dissenter. You don't have to be a soldier. It's extremely dangerous. And plus it's refoundment. It's sending people back to the place they fled, which is against international law. Um, and so cruel. I mean, you know, you're a grandmother and you've been in the country for 10 years and you've been working as a nurse. And next thing you know, you're torn away from your family and sent back to war. International law. What, I mean, what the heck? Is is there no way to, inf if it's international law, which it is, is there no possibility of, of enforcing that international law? I mean, where, what about that? Well, who's going to do it? I mean, the UN is you know, the most, all the EU High Court and the UN can do is issue reprimands. Uh -huh. And they, they issue reprimands and... Um, condemnations and they scold but um yeah and and there are you know and one can sue you can use the law to sue so mm. like the aclu would use it or or equivalents uh -huh. of that and other countries human rights lawyers will use the law to sue on behalf of specific people who've been treated like this which is really where the only teeth anybody has and I have to ask about about Africa. We haven't talked about Africa yet. You know, as yeah. as a centuries long so called scramble for Africa. As, as, you know, it's just a lot of people don't know about the scramble for Africa, but but the European imperialist uh, racists have been uh, doing it for years because you know there's so much right. uh, possibility of uh, resources there. The colonial empires of the West act as if they own the continent. There's been great violence done to the inhabitants there. And now China is there all over the place t trying to... Right. They have this uh, new program to, to develop Africa. And mm -hmm. I, I wonder about what's going on in Africa where refugees are coming from in Africa and <coughs> what, what makes them leave to seek shelter and, and not uh, you know, just look to the Chinese to improve their lives fairly soon? Well, there's a lot of violence, ethnic conflict, and um, <clears throat> political you know, conflict in various countries. Two of the people we feature in our book, um, which tells in-depth stories of five people, by the way, <clears throat> their entire lives before they were refugees, their flight and what happened to them when they got to Greece. The two Africans, one is from Nigeria and one from Cameroon. The Nigerian is gay, and he was fleeing homophobic laws and persecution. Um, he and his partner were discovered together. A mob attacked them. The partner was beaten to death, and he was declared wanted by the police. Uh, um, if he didn't get beaten to death or lynched first, he would be put in prison for uh, at least 15 years. So he had to flee. And I actually met quite a lot of African LGBTQ people who fled homophobic laws oh, as yeah. many countries. So that's one form of persecution that I saw among Africans. The Cameroonian was a political refugee 
um, he opposed, he demonstrated against the government and he was arrested and tortured and, um, and persecuted and basically drummed out of the country because he was opposed to the dictator. So um, some, you know, in uh, Somalia, which a lot of refugees come from, there's Boko Haram, which is the ISIS of oh, Somalia, yes. you know, which is um, like the Taliban and like ISIS is extremely oppressive. And um, I met quite a few Somalian women who were fleeing because they were going to be forced into marriage by two Boko Haram mm. uh, fighters. Um, and then there, you know, there are internal war, civil wars, like in Ethiopia with Eritrea. Uh, so the Congo, or ethnic violence, people being picked on because they belong to a minority mm. ethnic group. And so a lot of people are fleeing. Anyway, they're fleeing horrible violence. They're yeah. fleeing torture and rape and, you know, murdering of their families. And, and so it's they have a all the same rights to protections as everyone else. But as my, as the gay one from Nigeria, Evan said to me, I have traded homophobia in Greece for uh, racism. Mm. And so now he was dealing with that. And he's Christian, so, but he's African. So and he was dealing. I, I have to note that one of uh, our members of Congress, someone I happen to admire quite a bit, Ilhan Omar, is the only member of Congress who is herself a refugee. She is Somalian, and she's not being treated well by the new uh, Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, of course. What can people do? I mean, the powers that be want us regular people to believe we're powerless, and there's probably not a lot we can do. Uh, and I do think people have a right to stay home, ideally. What what can we do to, ins you know... Uh, as just average citizens, uh, to to right. to do something. <laughs> well, um, this forces me to plug my book again because oh, our God. last chapter is all about what can we do. Because if we just talk about how awful it is all the time and no solutions, you're you know it, it's too depressing and it makes us feel kind of um, passive and and um, and bound, you know, unable to do anything. Yes. In the last chapter, we, ha I have a, we have a list of things that countries can do and then a list of individuals, uh -huh. what individuals can do, from, from volunteering to inviting refugees to dinner uh -huh. to paying attention to the refugee and immigrant attitudes of the people you vote for and making sure that matters and you, you know that you vote with people who you agree with on those things, not just on Jeez. domestic matters. Uh -huh. um, and when you hear, uh, when you hear inaccuracies and lies and you know, hateful speech from people who may mean well, don't even know they're saying it, like calling people an illegal migrant, mm -hmm. just gently saying, well, actually, you know, and, and telling them the other side. Um, but you know what was most touching to me in spending all my years uh, interviewing in depth the people in the book mm. is when they said the thing that's made the most difference to us is if we're walking down the street and someone looks at us instead of with hatred, they look at us with a smile and a welcoming gesture. Uh -huh. And that can make the, all the difference in our lives. 
and that's something we can all do. But for more details, you know, really good organizations to donate to or volunteer yes. with, uh, you know, read the book. And the whole point of the book, I will say, like we were all partners in this together. There's an Afghan woman, there's two Syrians, there's um, and a Nigerian and a Cameroonian and a chapter on women. Oh. We all together wanted to say we've got to push against the negative stereotyping of refugees oh, by goodness. telling you our stories and showing you our whole lives and who we really are, like who we love and what we eat and what we love doing and what we're afraid of and you know, what our dreams are and what our daily lives are like, and, and as well as all the just incredible courage and resilience and fortitude they showed in getting where they've gotten and having their escapes and in their attempts to survive. And I think it's a very uplifting book in that way because it reminds us that at bottom we're all the same Yes. and that we could all be in this position one day, given oh, yes. climate change, as you said. Mm -hmm. And if we don't get it right now, what are we going to do in the future when more and more and more people have to flee for their lives? We can't put half the world in prison. Yeah. We have to find better ways. And now is the time to be doing it. It's way overdue, but this is if we think about it now, and we improve the way we treat people now, we can create models, as indeed we have in a way with Ukrainians, because that's where mm. everybody should be treated. And not, not all Ukrainians are having it great, by the way. I do want to acknowledge that it's not like easy for, to ever, it's never easy to be a refugee. But at least a lot of the countries are, are attempting to do the right thing and show that they actually can if there's a will. Mm. So let's keep doing it. Well, I believe it was uh, Abraham Lincoln who talked about the better angels of our nature. We can do it. We can do it. The book is called Map of Hope and Sorrow, Stories of Refugees Trapped in Greece. Our, our uh, guest has been the co-author of that book, uh, Columbia University professor Helen Benedict. Uh, a little bit hopeful there at the end. And uh, we can do what we can, which is not nothing. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, too. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.